thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last report, we reviewed a portion of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, which is now available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and elsewhere to permit anyone to study this material in greater depth. Concerning the key industrialist and capitalistic drivers of the formation of the roots of Christian mass media. In this next installment, we will have some concluding remarks about the subject of our last report, the overtly pro-Nazi fascist and foundational member of early Christian mass media, Gerald L. K. Smith, a man both who ran for the presidency and was arrested for sedition with a foreign power during a war. He built a publishing empire of MAGA-like hate speech about foreigners and others who were different, seeking a similar autocratic state, publishing hundreds of thousands of what he called propaganda pieces, like his Cross and the Flag magazine, and as he said in his own words, using religion and patriotism to, quote, teach them how to hate. Now, we will conclude concerning the late Mr. Smith with some comments on some images from the Wisconsin Historical Society bio on him that shows one of his national campaigns in concert with Henry Ford, followed by his building of a pioneering Christian national tourist attraction and how some unlikely agents came to his emotional aid. I now resume with the narrative for my book. This journal paper also has a couple of interesting photos of Smith and intriguing captions as well. 
One shows him speaking on stage during his 1942 senatorial campaign, promising to end rationing and provide tires for everyone, and said that his friend Henry Ford was making a synthetic tire that could provide abundant tires, but that Roosevelt was keeping it from the public. And a photo was there showing him demonstrating the tire on stage. Another shows Smith on stage besides a painting of Washington, holding a strange flag with American stripes, a British Union jack field, and with an eight-pointed star on top. The caption reads that, quote, Smith holds a flag representing the so-called British Israel movement. According to Smith, Jews masterminded a plan to force the United States back into the British Empire. The flag he brandishes would replace the American flag as America once more became a colony, unquote. Now, there is more to the Gerald H.K. Smith story. Another story from the New York Times in 1972 describes the unique hippie community in the Ozarks town of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and their interactions with Gerald H.K. Smith and his wife, who had settled there. It says the Smiths moved there in 1964, and, quote, First, they built a 70-foot statue of Jesus on a mountain overlooking the town. Then they opened a passion play portraying the last week of the life of Jesus, performed in a huge outdoor theater with permanent seats that depict Jerusalem's famous places. They have added a Christ-only art gallery and a 7,300-volume Bible museum. Remember, this is a avowed neo-Nazi. This spring, they started work on a $10 million, 167-acre model of the Holy Land, then in 1972. They add that, quote, the Smiths and their, quote, sacred projects became targets of criticism from many who disapproved of Mr. Smith's long crusade against what he calls the international Jewish conspiracy. Nevertheless, the Smiths estimate that a million people see the Christ of the Ozark statue each year. The Chamber of Commerce says that tourism has increased 42% over last year's rate. Deposits in the bank have doubled in four years. Real estate values have risen sharply, and there are virtually no vacant commercial buildings. They add that in recent years, from 1972, hundreds of the hippie longhairs started settling in the town, adding that, quote, virtually all of them earn money to support themselves. These may be the strangest freaks in the nation. They have developed a work ethic. They add that, quote, thanks partly to a social event, Mr. Smith and the Longhairs have finally achieved an uncertain detente. He had been fairly openly disdainful of them, and would order his driver to speed up to hurry past groups of them on the street. Then came the Smith's 50th wedding anniversary on June 21st. He invited everyone in town to the reception, even to the humblest citizen. But to be safe, however, they had two policemen and a private guard on hand when the 426 guests arrived. The guests included the mayor and the actor who plays Jesus in the Passion Play. The current one that plays Jesus has been subject for other stories, as well as former Governor Orville E. Faubus. 
However, about 15 long hairs also showed up, stating, quote, Who could be more humble than us? Now, the article writes that, quote, Mr. Smith was so pleased with their behavior and with Down Homes, the town hippie underground newspaper report, that he wrote a letter of thanks to the paper. As one who has been misunderstood and misrepresented down through the years, he wrote, perhaps I am in a better position to understand others who were victims of those misrepresentations better than might be expected. Interviewed in his home recently, Mr. Smith said that most of the long hairs were, quote, sincere people who are at peace here. Five or ten might have villainous motives, he said, but you can find more bad people than that in the back of a saloon every Saturday night. The long hairs are equally tolerant of Mr. Smith, although they have little use for his ideological views or his sacred projects. I can't forgive him for putting up such a bad piece of art. Gary Egan, a young ceramics artist and owner of the Spring Street Pottery, said yesterday, referring to the statue of Jesus that loomed in the distance from the back of the studio. It looks like a milk carton with head and arms. But I'd be the last person to try to run Smith out of here. There's room for everybody. He doesn't interfere with my pottery. If I'm going to be free in this town, certainly he has to be free. Now I added there that it sounds like Jesus came to Eureka Springs to stay via the humble outreach of some long hairs who the religious right would cringe about and denounce. For, quote, he who the sun sets free is free indeed and not by some libertarian definition of liberty. And by Jesus, I don't mean a big tall statue of Jesus that looks like a milk carton with heads and arms. <clears throat> the forgotten Gerald L.K. Smith sadly reveals a pattern that continues to be observed in the modern mega-populist leadership today. First, Smith was once a promising progressive looking out for the disadvantaged and the little guy. But changes in the strategy of political leaders he idolized and the observations that his policies of guardianship of the biblical anawim or the lost and forgotten ones caused him to lose the underwriting of the wealthy members of his church that were needed for his monetary compensation and growth. Caused him to see the light just as a new role model was emerging in post-Weimar Germany, and just as Alex Jones has done since and other media and church figures. Once a colope laborer for the poor with Jewish rabbis, he suddenly saw the lucrative advantages of drawing a faithful crowd by scapegoating minorities like Jews for society's problems. Like many in our society and listenership, he suffered with mental health and nervous breakdowns, but like many popular leaders, his manic episodes provided exhilarating, motivational fodder for a spiritually elect society that gravitates to collective mass psychosis themselves, and in a way exploits and empowers the demons these leaders struggle with, even today. Lastly, he may have been the first to assemble the concept of Christian nationalism, and the America First idea, and slogans, the latter not invented by the man down the escalator. We also seem Disney-fy 
his xenophobic Christofascism with a fantasy Christian amusement park for Christians to wallow in their myopic ignorance of the world at large, setting the stage for Jim Baker's Heritage Village and his new retreat now at Branson, and even the Ark Museum in Kentucky, as part of their cultural bunkers of separation and apocalyptic isolation. However, we see that God could use some laid-back hippies rather than seminary-trained Christian leaders, to finally touch his soul with a little light. Never forget his important quote after a successful career as a demagogue, in that once you combine religion and patriotism, stirring those primal impulses, he says skilled propagandists like himself can, quote, teach them how to hate. Now, we're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, again, which is available in print and ebook form at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and elsewhere. I encourage you to get a copy and study it, because we will continue to explore the depths to which the populist elitist, which is my definition of fascism, form a Christian worldview from the newly financially empowered Christian mass media and how it continued to descend. At that time, we will review the warnings of a minister that was a Christian cultural Jules Verne who saw these seeds of corrupt Christo-fascist mass media grow up right in front of him in the mid-1950s. However, the next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefings, which will go way back to 2015 to see the first questions arising about Tim Ballard and his new human trafficking rescue operation. Before that, however, it's time for some music for meditation. Being raised in the Christian culture, I have seen its establishment rail against the Jesus people and those on the fringe of Christian culture during my years. But we see here today that sometimes only they are the true spreaders of the faith to soften aged, cynical spirits. This upbeat spirit was embodied in the 1971 song, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, by the New Seekers, derived from one of the most famous commercials of all time from Coke, which you can hear now in its full form, and then we'll return to the Two Spies Report. I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love. Sing. 
Welcome back to the Two Spaz Report. I'm Mike Bennett. For a number of weeks, in our contemporary case file segments, we have been exploring the background and recent events of Tim Ballard and his Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR, of which he and his organization have been profiled recently in a very popular film in theaters known as Sound of Freedom, which gives a creative rendering of his flamboyant reality TV-style raids to purportedly rescue trafficked children intended to entertain and thus raise more funds and buzz. We have covered investigative articles from Vice and Associated Press from several years ago, which have noted the opaque nature of the financial arrangement and reporting of an organization now raising many tens of millions of dollars, the misleading tall-tale exaggerations of its accomplishments and associations with law enforcement, its associations with President Trump and his political agenda, the consenting adults caught up in their televised raids, in association with Mormon firms with disturbing track records and covering up child sexual abuse within their own communities. We have also noted the religious-like fervor in which MAGA, QAnon-sympathetic religious right citizens have embraced and obsessed over the subject in this group, breeding their own conspiracies about cover-ups and promoting the broadcast of the movie itself. In this continuing study, we will now look at even older reports when Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR, our, was even lesser known, including some initial impressed and flattering portrayals in its early days that give glimpses into early disturbing patterns of its operations. Let's begin by reviewing excerpts from a very early article on Ballard and his group by none other than Foreign Policy magazine which I believe is the party organ of the Council on Foreign Relations. This 2015 article, called The New Abolitionist, and referring to them as a, quote, small Mormon-led group, unquote, was evidently one of the earliest high-profile inquiries into the group, when the entire topic of vigilante efforts against human trafficking was obviously quite a novelty at the time. There they begin by giving a brief description of an operation of the group that the authors witnessed then in Acapulco, noting that an entire stage bust was viewed on the phone by a Silicon Valley high-tech executive who bankrolled it, and that the operation ends, as it ends, the macho ex-Special Forces guys are then transported immediately to be hosted by ex-Mexican President Vicente Fox. They note that a handful of private organizations had adopted what is known as the, quote, raid and rescue strategy, and notes groups such as the Christian-based International Justice Mission, IJM. But the hour was a new entrant at that time. Ballard explained that he became frustrated when his government job only let him intervene in concert with U.S. laws and within his jurisdiction but this new private group could act with impunity everywhere else. He said at the time they had 12 full-time staff, most of whom were Mormon and former military and intelligence officers and martial arts instructors, and said that if someone isn't comfortable praying, they're not going to be comfortable working with us. They add that 
Simultaneously, Auer is making a public splash by amplifying the drama of its tactics and the ways people can support the group's cause without ever busting into a brothel. A documentary movie called The Abolitionist has been screened privately in select U.S. theaters, that's at that time, and a proposed TV series about Auer is currently being filmed and that, quote, supporters can sign up to receive text message alerts when children are saved. If they're a big funder, they can get front row seats. The tech executive watching the Acapulco operation via FaceTime gave more than $40,000. They write that, then in 2015, quote, according to Jerry Gowan, Auer's chief operating officer, the organization has raised almost $5 million since its founding less than two years ago. Celebrities, many of whom are Mormon, are getting on the board, too. Uh, the Walking Dead star, Lori Holden, and Dancing with the Stars, Chelsea Hightower, have participated in raids. Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes went undercover with the group, and that Ballard had testified before Congress that year. They write that, quote, This idea of actually doing something is very powerful, says Ann Gallagher, uh, an expert in trafficking and an advisor to the United Nations. It's addictive to people. The author also joined them in their next raid in the Dominican Republic. Concerning their operations, they write that, quote, The first phase is finding a government in a country with high trafficking rates willing to cooperate with the group. Our staff members reach out to people they know from their former lives as agents and soldiers. Local police and prosecutors with whom they're already friendly are representatives from the State Department, FBI, or DHS who know the territory, and describes each operative's mission duty like, like it was the A-Team, and adds that, quote, the film crew for the TV series is in tow as well. Cameramen shoot the jump team using lenses hidden in backpacks, water bottles, and sunglasses, as, quote, the documentary crew carefully places more than 20 cameras throughout the party house. They write that, quote, at a $200 per plate gala in Washington, D.C. last November, Ballard regaled more than 260 guests with success stories, showing teasers of the abolitionist documentary, where they raised over $150,000 there. They write that IJM pioneered the field, taking journalists from Dateline and the New York Times along in the early 2000s, and then knockoff raid and rescue groups began appearing like Destiny Rescue and the Exodus Road. Experts in the field, however, told them that those rescued often don't stay safe for long and are released due to lack of resources or fear for their families and repeats the aforementioned claims that adult sex workers are often caught up in the raids or it results in harsher crackdowns on those not rescued, such as those being deprived of medical care by captors after hearing of operations conducted nearby. They show that IJM has since grown up in its approach, focusing more on training local law enforcement in troublesome countries and help the abilities of judicial and social service systems there. Their representative stating that, quote, we want to walk away from the image of the Western superhero going into places of darkness to rescue the little girl.
However, they quote academic human trafficking expert Gretchen Sunderland in noting that, quote, Bust, Sunderland says, are very strategic events that are almost tailor-made for the media. Auer has embraced this notion, using the internet, television, and film to push a slave-to-saved narrative. While another expert in the anti-trafficking review in 2014 wrote that donors' desire for visible results has, quote, the unintended consequence of growing the capacity of only a select group of organizations that may, in fact, be more successful at marketing and far less successful at actually ending trafficking. Immediately thereafter, Anne Gallagher of the Huffington Post provided a critique of the foreign policy article just published and the reporter embedded with the Our Group. She notes that it is a racy story and adds, quote, It's a boy's own adventure with all the requisite motifs. The heroes are all hyper-masculine and chisel-jawed. The victims are very young and very beautiful. The perps are foreign, swarthy, and snarling. She adds that in these operations, all this is filmed so that the person who funded the rescue can watch in real time and from the comfort of his or her office or home, where their money is going. After arrests are made, the hour team makes a quick exit, never to return. She notes that the article author, quote, hastens to assure the reader that, that they are careful not to entrap potential targets. Courts in the U.S. and many other countries would have a hard time making that distinction, and in most jurisdictions, such actions could constitute a defense to criminal liability. Stackpole also fails to explore the ethical and legal minefield of our live streaming their operations to benefactors overseas. That was the, art, the author of the foreign policy uh, article. From the perspective of a victim's right to privacy, such actions are reprehensible. She adds that, quote, Why are police in Mexico, the Dominican Republic, and Colombia not arresting child sex traffickers if they're so easy to find? The simplest explanation is law enforcement complicity in such crimes. Agreeing to cooperate with Auer is a win-win. Local cops get to keep an eye on what's happening and ensure Auer doesn't stray into their turf. They also gain international kudos for taking on the traffickers. She also asks, We know that child trafficking is a huge problem in the United States. Why is Auer not operating here? For that matter, why are they not raiding the brothels of Amsterdam or London? The simple reason is that Lacking any legal capacity to undertake such operations, Ballard and his ragtag team would be arrested on the spot. And any court in any of these jurisdictions would not hesitate to throw out a case that rests on the evidence of an hour-type raid because of the failure to meet the even most basic standards of supervision and accountability. It's no surprise that the organization and its fellow travelers limit their activities to countries burdened by dysfunctional criminal justice systems that for their own reasons, or perhaps in response to pressure from the U.S. government, agree to cooperate. She adds that, quote, the targeting of low-level offenders, recruiters, and pimps also reveals an alarming lack of understanding about how sophisticated 
criminal tracking networks must be approached and dismantled. She closes by boldly stating that, quote, The exploitation of human beings for private profit is an outrage, whether it takes place in the United States or in a poor country far away. The temptation to do something in the face of such villainy can be overwhelming, and the lure of the quick fix is often very difficult to resist. But the task of eliminating human trafficking is not amenable to such an approach. It requires hard work, a tolerance for incremental, sometimes almost imperceptible success, and an unwavering commitment to justice and the rule of law. Ballard's operations say much about the man. They are arrogant, unethical, and illegal, unquote. Now, I haven't seen any senior Christian officials make such mature and deliberative assessments about Ballard's group and its implications. Now, Vice continued its perennial critique in its investigations of Ballard and Operation Underground Railroad long after their groundbreaking December 2020 expose we covered previously. In March 2021, still while the organization was largely under the radar, they wrote that, quote, The rescue mission somewhere on the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic was not going well. The anti-trafficking charity, Operation Underground Railroad, our, had arrived in a remote village seeking a missing child, acting on what founder Tim Ballard had promised was a solid tip from a source. A group from our so-called jump team had entered the village, pretending to be part of a medical team. Real medical workers had been hired as cover and were providing actual care to people in the village, while the operators, as they're called, quietly surveyed the scene. But the missing child was nowhere to be found. And then, to the dismay of several people on the ground, Ballard produced his source, a psychic medium from Utah. The child in question was Gardy Marty, a Haitian boy who disappeared in December 2009. This was the catalyzing event that led Ballard founding hour several years later. By 2014, Ballard and his team of operators descended on Haiti to find Gardy in the first of several operations. Two operatives on that mission told this article author that Ballard was so confident with his source that he called Gardy's father to tell him he would receive his son soon and to come to the village. They saw this woman from Utah that Ballard would not let them speak to and discovered that this was his psychic source. The woman, Janet, was asked for comment from Vice, but she said she was subject to a non-disclosure agreement with them. A rep from Hour did confirm that they used this psychic regularly, although at least for this expensive operation it did not work out. The sources reported that the villagers became upset and suspicious when Ballard showed up with a big camera crew. The article writes, Quote, he's not making decisions tactically, one of the people who, who was present told Vice World News. He's making decisions like a reality TV producer. And so he starts running around the village like an idiot. The cameras are following him. He's drawing so much attention to himself. They add that, quote, people who participated in and witnessed our operations overseas recounted blundering missions. 
carried out in part by real estate agents and high-level donors, that seemed aimed mainly at generating exciting video footage and that, in their view, potentially created demand for trafficking victims. A person who made it through what they described as slapdash training and was offered a, a spot on the overseas rescue team but did not join, said its leaders talked about operators being sexually tempted by the victims they were supposedly out to save. In all, these people told a story involving alarming amateurism that potentially endangers both those carrying out missions and the people they're meant to help, unquote. The authors were not allowed to speak to Ballard or his senior leadership. They write that Auer, quote, brought in more than $21 million in 2019, the most recent year for which tax filings are available, and has enjoyed the support of high-powered backers, ranging from Pittsburgh Steelers coach Mike Tomlin to Glenn Beck to Utah, Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes, the top law enforcement official in the state, where Auer is based. The image of armed men racing into dangerous situations to rescue sexually abused children has been a hit with Auer's donors and with media outlets, which have run hundreds of flattering stories about its work. The article adds that their self-described crown jewel in their operations and their fundraising appeals is their, quote, jump team, which is the best of the best from high-intensity macho fields like special operations, whose training is, quote, ongoing and consists of hand-to-hand -hand combat and handgun instruction. And they also showed in the article a sample ad from the organization with a photo of individuals lined up in a menacing shadowy pose with big biceps with the tagline, quote, privately run, bureaucracy, bureaucracy free, unquote. I guess sort of like Blackwater. However, insiders claim that the presence of many special forces type as operators was really exaggerated. Rather, they said, quote, nothing our did seemed recognizably informed by professional military or intelligence practice. There was, they said, contrary to the process for operations laid out on our website, no meaningful surveillance or identification of targets, no development of assets, no validating that people they sought to rescue had in fact been trafficked, or that people they were targeting were indeed traffickers, and no meaningful follow-up with people who had been rescued on the missions in which they took part. They write that, quote, In a typical operation, as these sources describe it, our operators would head into a town in a country like the Dominican Republic and flash thousands of dollars at clubs and bars saying that they were there to party. Now, it's laughable to call what he did Ops, a veteran who worked with our overseas, said of Ballard. Quote, they'd go and just push for pimps and show up with girls. If presented with sex workers of legal age, Auer would insist on younger girls, a method that several experts said could, when combined with a lack of intelligence gathering and vetting, potentially lead to girls being trafficked who otherwise wouldn't have been. In my opinion, that's what he's doing. He was creating demand, said one of the former military members who worked with Auer overseas. Because you see the pimps show up with a weird mix of girls, young but experienced, and then there would be a couple of really young girls. 
It felt to me like they'd been roped in because Tim had flashed so much money. They conflate sex work and trafficking, said a former military member who has worked with Auer. They're making it worse. A Thai sex worker interviewed affirmed that if there are no underage workers, they continuously ask and ask the employer to find some underage workers, uh, she added. So they create a situation where there are underage workers, where there weren't before. Ultimately, several former members of the military left Auer in disgust over what they had witnessed there, they told Vice World News. From my perspective, Tim Ballard and Auer are the Theranos of the NGO world, they added. Tim is a master marketer. Good-looking, charismatic, he tells these stories, so nobody really diligences him. Nobody took the time to check and see what his product was, could he deliver. This thing just grew to what it is. I hope you can see why I'm taking numerous weeks to fully cover this story. Before we reach the present day on this topic, I will show later how this human trafficking frenzy is reaching the strangest corners of our culture today. It's a real curiosity. Before we resume our review of the historical section for my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, we need to take a break for some more music for meditation. I imagine many listeners are shocked at the gall I have to criticize someone who is just trying to rescue poor trafficked children. The pursuit of truth in life not only produces the threats from the powerful, but also the hurtful misunderstandings of those you love and respect. We should not expect any different than Christ himself received from his own family in his life. In light of this, we will now hear from Louisa Jane White, who, when you hear her, it might surprise you, is actually a white British singer in this 1971 soul song, Speak the Truth and Shame the Devil. And then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In this segment, we will renew our discussions of the historical narrative 
of the industrialist founding of Christian media and parachurch organizations from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and elsewhere, in which I encourage you to study in print form to explore these issues on a deeper level. In this report, we will explore the findings of a pioneering, concerned clergyman from the 1950s, who was one of the lone voices observing, documenting, and publishing warnings about the rise of Christian fascist media back in their early heyday. This heroic, thankless task will now be reconsidered after having been forgotten for three quarters of a century, and its message is more pertinent now than ever. I now proceed with the narrative from my book. As I concluded the research and documentation on these, quote, gentlemen, I saw mention a few times of a 1953 reference book that saw that some saw as definitive of the era of these demagogues and their golden age, entitled Apostles of Discord by Ralph Lord Roy. I after, afterwards chanced upon a used copy of such, which I was fortunate to obtain, since it contains a wealth of further information on these men and their hijinks, and other collaborators in their deeds and like-minded figures that fostered anti-Semitism and racism amongst the clergy and Christian followers specifically, all in the name of Christ. While the 1953 time frame of this work misses much of the development of events, both personally for these men and nationally and globally, in the decades afterward, it is a, quote, eyewitness account of these men in real time when their deeds and the Red Scare, racism, and the Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower controversies were well underway, and it supplies further details that historians decades later tended to miss, as well as verifying the more salacious details of, of these figures that we have already documented. Regarding its author, a 2002 article in the Hartford Current newspaper about his, quote, fourth retirement from pastoring notes that, quote, he has picketed with Martin Luther King, Jr., been arrested during the Civil Rights Movement, written a nationally best-selling book, and traveled across the globe. Yet these are only some of the accomplishments of the Reverend Ralph Lord Roy in the last 50 years. After serving as minister of 10 churches, Roy, 74, is retiring from First and Summerfield United Methodist Church. He earlier transferred from Columbia Law School to the Union Theological Seminary, having felt the call to pastor. And they add that, quote, Roy was swept up in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, along with many other northern clergymen who joined a group called the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. In 1961, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregation on interstate travel was illegal. A group known as the Freedom Riders tested whether this ruling was actually being enforced. As part of this group, Roy was paired with an African-American minister on the bus to eat with and stay with in hotels. He described instances where southern restaurants would suddenly close when they arrived for cleaning. But when they would wait until it reopened, they would be arrested for illegal assembly. They add that 
Quote, the, the following August, he participated in a picket at the White House in an effort to persuade President Kennedy to release from jail Martin Luther King Jr., with whom Roy said he had had lunch many times. Later, Roy said he helped organize a, a large group of northern clergymen to join a pro protest in Albany, Georgia, after receiving a letter from King urging him to become involved. The protesters were subsequently arrested, Roy's second arrest in two years. It was the largest group of clergy ever arrested, Roy said. They noted that prior to 1970, when Roy was assigned to a church in Clinton, North Carolina, he had worked solely in New York with chiefly African-American congregations. They also write that, along with his work as a clergyman, Roy has written three books, one of which, Apostles of Discord, was a national bestseller. I look back at it with some chagrin, Roy said. I don't see how it became a bestseller. He's also written newspaper columns, as well as occasionally doing radio shows. Roy said he discusses a wide variety of topics, including inspirational themes, the crisis in the church, and politics. I've always been interested in politics, but I have to be careful because I don't believe in using the pulpit to advance politics, he said. It wouldn't have been nice days when pastors would go get arrested on behalf of someone and not just attacking capital grounds and impaling law enforcement. The cover of the book itself, Apostles of Discord, has endorsements of famed theologian Reinhold Niebauer, saying, quote, Ralph Roy has performed an important task in his careful analysis. This book is a rather sobering reminder to us all that the worst corruption is a corrupt religion, unquote. Also, the National Council of Churches Chief, Bishop Oxnam, which says, quote, an extraordinarily valuable piece of work. Uh, another, uh, Henry Smith Leeper says, quote, false piety like false patriotism shields many a scoundrel. It's a good quote. This careful study exposes some of the worst groups of hate mongers in contemporary America, unquote. Also, Herbert Philbrick said, Apostles of Discord clearly demonstrates the need for every layman and leader to re-examine and reaffirm the deepest roots of his spiritual beliefs, lest he be victimized by the extremists, both right and left, who are today successfully masquerading behind the clerical cloak and theological terminology and others. And you can see why I would identify with this gentleman from back in 1953. Within its preface, Roy expresses the sincere concern that in his detailed documentation of the extremist groups within American Christianity and its media on both extremes, he might unfairly castigate sincere conservatives or liberals that do not hold bigoted or other dangerous views, or unfairly take the most egregious examples out of context. He might also reveal that some parties cavort with these agents of discord while not fully realizing their motives. He expressed an intention of revealing to them the dangers of their ways, but also de desiring not to paint all of Protestantism with the reputation of these bad players, and rather to accomplish a constructive good. He admits his status as a Republican of centrist tendencies, but provides extensive coverage of Christian subversives 
or what he calls the underground, although operating publicly, on both the hard right and communist infiltration as well, with the range of racist, bigoted, anti-Semitic, communist sympathizing and anti-immigration and isolationist values in statements all fully documented, as well as Christian libertarianism. So he sets a high bar as a role model for taking the high road, a very Christ-like, constructive, edifying, and intended fair-minded approach with these subjects that he reviews. Roy notes at the time of the 1952 national election, nearly all extremist groups in the country appropriated General Douglas MacArthur as the symbol of their cause and sought to spur a countrywide attempt to sabotage the national tickets of both major parties. One of their weapons was an assemblage of third parties designed to counter the, quote, Jew control of the Republican-Democratic organizations, as in 1948. Quote, the Protestant underworld inaugurated the Stop Ike the Kike campaign, with the aforementioned Reverend Gerald L.K. Smith noting the description of Eisenhower as the terrible Swedish Jew from his West Point yearbook, and a chart showing Roosevelt's Jewish ancestry. Younger readers should be aware that General MacArthur was in command of all U.S. forces in Asia in World War II and in command of the U.N. armies in Korea in that conflict and willing to defy the commands of President Truman, his superior, and the Allies and continue to attack North Korea and the likelihood of nuclear war with both the USSR and China with a belligerence that required his dismissal but the admiration of American extremists and war hawks. He adds that, quote, A number of hyper-conservatives met in early August to nourish the Constitution Party, a splendor fringe born in New York City in early spring 1952, to work for the nomination of MacArthur. The new group elected as co-chairman Percy L. Greaves, consulting economist of the Christian Freedom Foundation, the publishers of Christian Economics, which we've covered a number of weeks ago, and Miss Suzanne Silvercroys Stevenson. Smith told his followers that, quote, we propose that the great white Christian vote shall be the new balance of power in American politics. In many states, our vote will be the determining factor in November, and by 1954, we will be the most vital political entity in the United States. Organizing the Christian Nationalist Party and getting MacArthur on the ballot in 14 states. Smith later feared that with their failure, widespread conscription or the draft would occur and cause the repeal of the McCarran Immigration Act so that 20 million Jews and coloreds would be dumped on American shores. They proposed to see to it that never again will the great white Christian majority population of America be able to express majority power, sounding much like the Trump campaign and their followers today. Another key evangelical figure and apostle of discord of this area that Roy documents and that has not been covered to date is Gerald Winrod. Importantly, they note that, quote, Winrod launched the Defender magazine in April 1926 with circulation of 40,000 by 1934 and 100,000 by 1937. And with its low cost, 
only 50 cents to a dollar a year, helped spread its message among lower economic groups. He adds that Winrod has never held a pastorate, with his secretary noting that the entire United States and Canada are his congregation. As Winrod reported that a rapidly developing cooperation of Catholics and Jews is gaining control of the American government. Winrod cited the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion Forgery and went to Germany in 1934 at the invitation of a Nazi propagandist to, quote, study social, political, moral, economic, and prophetic trends, unquote, and meet the pro-Nazi church. He returned to the U.S. and destroyed his critical work about Hitler and, quote, began to praise the Nazi regime and deny persecution of Jews there. He then became involved with pro-Nazis, including Elizabeth Delling, Robert Edward Edmondson, and Ian Sanctuary, who were all put on trial for sedition later, and he also sought allies amongst the American clergy. In 1938, he ran for the Senate in Kansas with a platform of, quote, states' rights, private enterprise, Americanism, and isolationism, saying, let's keep Christian America Christian. In his divorce trial, his wife alleged under oath that he expected to be a nominal head of the country when the revolution came and that he wanted to take me to a secret hideout so that I could be protected when the government should close in on him. Reminds me a lot of General Flynn. And, quote, every evening at home, by the radio, the children were taught that everything Hitler did was right and everything that England and France did was wrong. And he began to organize a series of prayer and prophecy conferences in 1940, featuring other nationally known apostles of bigotry. Well, friends, that's uh, another edition of the Two Spies Report. We're going to have to stop right there. But we will have at least a couple more reports from the compelling findings of Reverend Roy all the way back to 1953. However, considering this initial material of, of his documentation of the affairs of Christian mass media fascists in his day, we can see that all the storylines of today's nationalism message, uh, scapegoating minority races and faiths, and the trusty standby anti-Semitism, fear-mongering of violence in the streets due to their cause, and extremist measures needed to restore order, of course to be led by the demagogue who established the need to then fill it, like the door-to-door salesman strategy for a century or more, were in full play long ago. Those of the Christian faith might be repulsed for the association here of Christianity and Nazi messages so blatantly, but their support was widespread in Christian circles, as it was in the 1920s and 1960s, and as it is any different today, or just worse in many respects, adding Hispanics as, quote, rapists and murderers, and immigrant children directed by the president at the time to be subject to gunfire with whispers of international conspiracies over our voting system by Italian satellites, North Korean boats with ballots in Maine, and alleged plans to poison Christians with vaccines? In our next edition, we will continue with our review of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, 
the teaching of Jesus versus the leaven of the Pharisees and talk radio and cable news, which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form, either at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or other sites, to review this and far more expansive material on the subject, which we'll then disclose many more findings from Reverend Roy back in his day when we return. Please send any comments about the show or questions at twospiesreport at gmail.com, T-W-O, spies, S-B-I-E-S, report at gmail.com. These are for questions or comments for us to discuss on the air. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and being willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand, telling all my friends.